Welcome to episode number 35 of the Marine Layer podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we welcome Danny Vietti, a social media manager at CBS Sports and the host of the Wake and Rake podcast with Will Middlebrooks. It's great catching up with Danny. We talked some Mariners baseball, and we also talked a little bit about the Oakland Athletics reverse boycott that he got to attend. Some really good stories from that and a really good conversation with Danny. We have our mid-season report cards. We'll go around position by position for the Mariners and give each position a great, really uh, interesting uh, exercise that Lyle and I go through with this. We go down on the farm and pick out our standout Mariners minor leaguer. Another MLB wraparound. We take a look around baseball at some of the most exciting stories around the game. Another Russell Wilson umpire of the week. And we close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Before we get to the show, just a reminder, we've partnered with In The Clutch Clothing Company. They're an official partner of the Marine Layer Podcast. In The Clutch is the ultimate fan site for Seattle baseball merchandise, including the Celebration Trident, official MLBPA shirts for J-Rod, Jared Kelnick, Cal Raleigh, and Los Bomberos. If you're interested to get one, use the code MarineLayerPod at InTheClutch.com for 10% off, and currently, every shirt on their website ships within the U.S. for free. And make sure, guys, please go check out our YouTube channel. That's one of the best ways to support our channel. We put in a lot of work on that channel. So if you're listening on Apple or Spotify or however you digest your podcast, go over to our YouTube channel, go subscribe, go turn on the notification bell so you know when we post. Vice versa, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to check out our podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Leave us a review, download our podcasts, all that good stuff. And if you want to find us on social media, you can find us at Marine Layer Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you to this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast recording here on Monday, June 26th. Did that weekend not go exactly how we predicted? To an absolute T, it did. Because here's what happens, right? They wallop the Yankees in the Bronx in the final game. They parlay that by absolutely curb-stomping the Orioles. And everybody naturally sits there and thinks to themselves, well, could this be the turn? Is this finally the point in the season where they turn it around? And then they lose the next two. It was just, this is just what happens. This is This is kind of what they do. I think you and I, after Thursday's game in New York, sat there and thought, this is going to happen. This has the potential to happen again in Baltimore on Friday. And then they're going to end the road trip two and four with two excruciating losses over the weekend. And yeah, it went exactly like that with the exact sort of excruciating things you didn't want to see, but still ended up happening. Two, one, uh, two, I guess, one score losses with a walk-off home run and extra innings, you can count that as close to a one-run loss as you can without it actually being one. And then Sundays as well. Exactly how you thought. Exactly. So the Mariners end up with the road trip with a positive run differential and a 2-4 and record. And you wouldn't say, well, that was a good road trip based on run differential. And we're sitting here like, not really. This is the complete opposite of 2021, because I feel like in 2021, what would happen is the first game, they would be the ones that would get absolutely blown out, and then they'd somehow come back and win the next two games in a series by one run each game. 
and their run differential would be terrible, but their record would be okay. And now all of a sudden it's kind of the reverse of that. What's really funny is we recorded last week's episode before the first game of the Yankees series. And one of our great thought out storylines was, man, is the Mariners offensive uh, approach really improved? And then you and I are sitting there watching the first two game of the Yankees series like, what a bunch of fucking idiots you two are. (laughs) Yeah, and then against the Orioles too, and they go out and they can't score any runs, especially in that Sunday game. I I had a good chuckle though. I thought it was funny. It was on brand. I will say, give us credit for 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 predicting. We've watched this story too many times now. This is what five hundred teams do. They'll tantalize you, and then they'll come back down to earth with the same things that have plagued them throughout the season. Now we have a pretty big sample throughout the season already, Lyle. That I thought this was appropriate for this week's episode. Instead of storylines this week, we're going to go through the Mariners roster position by position, and give out report cards. Uh, will these will this report card pass the class is the big question. I guess we're going to find out at the end. And for anybody listening too, let us know what your report cards would be. If you're listening and you want to follow along with us and you want to give a letter grade to each position, go right ahead. In our next show, we'll get back to doing normal storylines, but we figured here at the midpoint of the season, this is probably a good time to do some assessments. So let's get into our report cards. First up, let's start at first base. Lyle, what is your report? uh, What is your grade for first base? I gave it a B minus. So Ty's picked it up as of late, right? Which is great. His defense has been pretty good. He He rarely strikes out, which we know is a piece of his game. But he's right at about the league average for first baseman in war. He's bottom third in WRC+. The Mariners just need more from him. And it's good that he's starting to heat up. But if we're looking at first half as a whole... I went about B minus. I had the same grade as you did. B minus. He's well below his career norms that he's established with the Mariners. We've noted this. He had a 130 WRC plus in 21. 126 last year probably should have been higher if he didn't get hurt. He's sitting at 120 this year, and that's with him picking it up over this recent stretch. His defense has been fine. Outside of Ty France, there's been zero production at first base because he started nearly every single game at first base and he's been good again but for a guy who's supposed to be I would say a top three hitter on this roster maybe not quite enough for that first base position so when we're in the b range that's usually what I thought of for this that's good but not exceeding expectations not wowing anybody if you're going to take a guess um there's the we don't throw around A grades lightly for this report card, I wouldn't say. so. And that starts out with a bang with one of your better positions, first base, receiving barely above a C grade. But B minus is passing, barely. Second base, Lyle, what's your grade? Second base, I went C minus. And this is actually being totally held up by Jose Caballero because he's been great. And since he's come up, he's been a really nice shot in the arm for this team. But Colton Wong's disastrous first half When you're looking at the group as a whole, it's brought it down. And Sam Haggerty's struggles don't help either. So it's great that Caballero's running a WRC plus close to 120. It's nice that he's played good defense and run the base as well. Group as a whole, second base has been an issue for a long time, and they're still trying to work through it right now. The only reason this is not an F is from Jose Caballero. I gave them a D plus. My first note was this is an F without Caballero. Defense, speed. Great. Getting in the mind of the opponent. Great. Outside of him, 
it's stunk. And Dylan Moore, when he's come back, hasn't played all that much. He's been healthy for nearly, uh, he's been healthy since June 8th, Dylan Moore has, and he's gotten 18 plate appearances as of recording here on Monday afternoon. That's not the impact you really wanted out of Dylan Moore. I think you and I both want to see more of Dylan Moore, but right now it's been mostly still the mix of Caballero and, and Colton Wong as well with Dylan Moore coming off the bench. Not sure why that is, but that's a big reason why this second base earns uh, a D plus. And it's, if it's just Colton Wong, you're looking at, you know, it's, it's an F, but I don't really think we need to explain that. I wonder if they might've brought Dylan Moore back a little too soon. I'm not a doctor. I don't have the medical reports, but you just look at him. It doesn't look like his timing is quite down yet at the plate. They might've just wanted to get him back with the idea to get him playing some defense, steal some bases, because he can provide some value there. And then over time, start to just work his bat into the lineup. If I had to guess, that's what it is. But yeah, the production hasn't been there at the plate yet. I don't really want to say desperation is the reason, but when you're desperate to get some production at second base, sometimes you could be lent to do that. And that very well might have... Uh, it Very well could have happened with Dylan Moore. We'll see how he adjusts as the season goes along and we get a few more weeks here into the summer and in a better in a better hitting environment as well shortstop what's your grade I went C plus at shortstop and honestly JP's year at the plate has been great I mean a lot of his swing looks fixed he's hitting fastballs now which is great he's top five at the position in WRC plus keep that in mind for all the payroll Twitter people out there that were so furious about not getting one of those shortstops offensively JP's as good as you could be asking for at the position the issue is his defense is kind of dropped down in production again. And I say kind of, he's in the sixth percentile and outs above average, where last year he was in the second percentile. He was off to a great start in April, but it's come down a little bit since. So if he was playing league average defense, his grade would probably be closer to a B or B plus. But for me, because of the lack of defense now, I gave it a C plus. And a league at if you put his league average defense with that bat, you could argue he's working himself closer to the top five of shortstops in terms of production this year, because that mix would have led to the results that way. I'm I'm really a big fan of what JP has done at the plate this year. It's not just the results he's gotten. The, the expected numbers on his baseball savant page are, are good. He's hitting the ball harder than most shortstops have this year. And for a guy who's never hit the ball hard in his career. It's really nice to see him do that. And he continues to be a valuable part of this lineup walking 14% of the time as well. Just that defense. We, we expected it to take a, a step forward again, and it's been right, right where it was last year. I kept it at a B minus. So it, in the same area, but that's what it is for JP overall, though, a net positive to the lineup and defense. Meh. Third base. I went C- minus at third base, and this is being saved by A. Eugenio Suarez's defense. The fact he is one of the best third basemen in baseball and one of the best defenders in baseball right now by outs above average is saving this grade. And I'm happy to see that some of his peripherals offensively are trending up, but if you're just looking at production so far in the first half, for a guy that you are relying on to be a thumper in the middle of your lineup, the WRC plus around 90 is not cutting it. And we've seen the struggles he's had with the strikeouts, just the lack of hard contact, kind of everything at the plate, lack of power. So yeah, C-. They need much more from his bat. His peripherals are closer to last year than you would think, but in the end, this report card is based on results, and there have been no results outside of defense for A. Eugenio. I did note that I thought this was interesting. The league average WRC plus for big league third baseman this year is only 95. 
that kind of floored me. Which is crazy because third base is one of the premier offensive positions in baseball these days with Manny, with Arenado, with Jose Ramirez, and some others. But a lot of those guys are struggling this year, which is totally uncharacteristic for guys that honestly probably have Hall of Fame cases when their career's said and done as long as they keep their production up. But all these superstars at third base are not hitting right now. It's the oddest thing. I gave Gino a D. I skipped my grade, but he gets a D. And I I summed it up in one sentence. He went from the Mariners' second best hitter last season to the second worst everyday hitter this season. And that just has too much of a detrimental impact on this lineup's ability to function when he can't produce even close to the levels he was at last year. It's taken a step in the wrong direction, and we just hate seeing that from Gino. We hope he picks it up in the second half. Left field. Left field, I gave a B minus. And I want to clarify on this. Jared Kelnick himself, I would give a B plus. Yeah, his his bat and his production have come down a little bit as of late. Now we'll see where that starts to level out as the second half goes on. He may get hot again and bring his WRC plus back up. Not to say it's been bad. It's still sitting right at about 120, which is good. It's well above league average, just not where it was in April. But you factor in Jared's bat, the improvements he's made at the plate, his defense, He's had a really good year for the Mariners, and he's he's on pace for about a three to three and a half win season. We haven't talked a ton about AJ Pollock as of late. He's bringing the group down. I mean, for a guy that was expected to come in here and hit left-handed pitching exclusively, he's running out a 13 WRC plus against left-handed pitching. 13. So he's 87% above or below league average doing what he's supposed to be doing. That's the not second- cutting it. It's the second worst mark in baseball, only behind someone whose name I forget. I think it's Gabriel Arias, but not totally confirmed, who has a zero WRC plus against lefties. That's the only one worse, who has a zero. Which just doesn't make any sense. He has crushed left-handed pitching his whole career. This is what AJ Pollock does. But for whatever reason, he has had a rough go of it in the first half. And as a result, the left field group as a whole, their grade's getting brought down to a B-. minus. I separated this out too. Jared gets a B plus individually and AJ Pollock gets an F in this spot. Overall, the left field grade is a B. I think Jared has been probably best case scenario at the plate this year, minus the strikeouts. I'd say the strikeouts are not the best case scenario because his K rate's up near 33% for the season now. But overall, when he does make contact, he's still hitting the ball pretty hard and he's playing a really, a really solid left field defensively and still just 23. Still just 23. Isn't that great? AJ Pollock, though. As we talk about guys, we're not totally sure why he's on the roster. AJ Pollock is creeping into that, or creeping. He is in that, he's in that group right now of of why he's on the roster and why he's getting big at bats like he got yesterday on Sundays, swings at the first pitch and hits a ball about 13 miles an hour on the ground, which was which made us chuckle and like throw our hands in the air. AJ is bringing this bringing this grade down. It's it's bad. Negative half wins above replacement for a part time player is impressive, to say the least. Center field. This is the one I struggled with the most, and I had to sit and think about: Am I going to grade Julio on a curve? I decided not to. I, I teetered back and forth with this. I decided not to. I gave the group a B. Now, when you look at Julio as a whole among center fielders. He's top five among the position in war. He's still on pace for a four-plus win season. 
but obviously his bat has not been there. It's nowhere close to what Julio's supposed to be doing. So here's how I separated this. This team is built on the idea that Julio should be getting A to A plus grades every half season, every season, however you want to measure it. He's not. He's a few grades below that. He hasn't been terrible by any stretch. A four-war season, if that's his worst career season, that's pretty good. But for where the team needs him to be right now, it's not where it's not cutting it. So he's been fine, but not good enough. So I gave him a B. This is where you and I are going to differ the most. You might be shocked. I gave him a C minus. Ooh. So that's kind of tough. If I was grading Julio on a curve, it probably would have been closer to that. I decided to grade him just among other center fielders in baseball. I did grade him on a curve. He's worth 2.1 wins above replacement this year for fan graphs. That's pretty good right now. You know, he might end up with five wins pretty easily. A lot of this is carried by the fact he's playing elite defense in center field. He's taken a clear step forward in center field, and that's really helping him in that category. His offense is just, it's just flabbergasting watching some of his plate appearances. When it seems like he's turning it around, we still see a couple of those things creep in, especially the series over the weekend against Baltimore, that have been hampering him all year. And, you know, is he pressing? Maybe. But we're not here to break down his approach. I'm just here to break down the results of the Mariners needed way more than a 106 WRC plus from Julio Rodriguez this season. I, I just get such a headache seeing people online saying the Mariners needing who it's indicative of the Mariners that they set up this roster that Julio had to be great for them to be great. And I'm sitting there thinking, so are we just not supposed to expect our great players to be great. Is it just going to be like, okay, we need to prepare for a worst case scenario. Houston needs to prepare that Jordan Alvarez is only going to have a 101 WRC plus through the first half of the season because we can't lob that all onto a 25 year old shoulders. Like, I'm just just think about think of how absurd that sounds. Do you think the Angels every year are are, are preparing for Mike Trout to not perform like Mike Trout? No. So why should we expect say that? Oh, like. It's unfair that we're expecting too much out of Julio. It's not unfair, and those takes are absurd. Look at the Yankees. Look at what the Yankees are with and without Aaron Judge. Their roster is built on one of the best players in baseball being one of the best players in baseball, and they paid him accordingly, just like the Mariners did with Julio. You're seeing the Yankees right now without Judge. They're kind of a mediocre baseball team. They're hovering around that last wild card spot, but they're not playing inspiring baseball. I think the Mariners are right in that same category. This roster, yes, is built on the guy that is supposed to be an elite ball player and the cornerstone of this team doing exactly that. And right now it's just not happening. And that's why he gets a C minus because Julio is not playing like Julio should. That's it. That's all it is, right? Even if he's good compared to your average ball player, he's not compared to your average ball player. He's compared to Julio. Right field. Right field, I gave a C, and Teoscar's really upped his grade over the last month or so because he's been on such a tear that it's a full swing from where he was just a few weeks prior. Now, this is still first half as a whole, which is why he's not getting like a B plus. but his WRC plus is sitting right around 110. He's put up a full win. What he's done in the last month looks like the Teoscar that we traded for from Toronto. So I've upped his grade, but you can't forget about April and May either, where he really struggled. So I gave him a C. He gets a B minus because he's kept this offense afloat. 
most of this month. 179 this month. Two pretty bad months in April and May. But this month, I think, has salvaged his grade a lot. Is dragged it up to pretty much a, a B minus. And I would say, you know, I think that's fair. I think anywhere between C and B minus is, is fair for Teoscar Hernandez. But this version of Teoscar here in June has been what the Mariners have traded for. And that's where it, you know, it gets slightly below the good category. DH. I don't think we need to spend much time on this one. They get an F. Easily. F. Yep. Do you, anything you want to say? <laughs> the last 10 days for Mike Ford have been fun. But other than that, ugh, that has been a gaping black hole. The Jerry DePoto versatility DH idea did not work. It did not, and that's the, the and the grade reflects that. Unfortunately, I, I didn't even write anything down. I don't. I don't even think this needs any explanation. It's an F. Whoever they put there, it stunk. Hasn't worked, and it's been really refreshing to watch Mike Ford take the new King Felix deep, uh, as Baltimore <laughs> dubbed yesterday. Starters, you're missing one. We're, we're missing one position group here. We didn't. Do, we didn't do catchers yet. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, want to do that? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I give the catcher group a B plus, And the reason I did is because, look, Cal could be doing more with the bat too, but he's top 10 for catchers in war. He's tied for fifth in home runs, or he's in the, he's within the top five in home runs. Still needs to hit for a little more power as a whole and go for some more extra base hits. But ultimately he's been pretty good. And then Tom Murphy has been a league average backup. His war is exactly at zero his wrc plus sits right around 100 that's a backup catcher so you could have gone anywhere from b minus to b plus with this group but the fact cal sits top 10 in war and top five in home runs i gave him a b plus i have it as a b plus too tom murphy as of late he had a tough start to the season but he's actually been playing pretty decent ball over the you know the last handful of weeks which has been really nice to see was expecting a little bit more out of cal this season like you said with the bat and his defense has also not been I think it's it has been great, but catcher's not been really the spot that's been dragging down. Cal's still technically an above average bat by WRC plus, which as a catcher is really all you can ask for. So that earns a B plus, and they have been a huge key in making these next two groups very successful. Let's get to starting pitchers. What's your grade? I gave him an A minus, and obviously they've had to kind of go through some rough waters at points of the year between losing Robbie Ray, you lose Marco Gonzalez. The two rookies have been awesome, which has totally saved this rotation. But when you sit top 10 in ERA, they're third in war, they're fourth and fifth, they're fifth in XFIP. That's a pretty good group of starting pitchers. And and they've hovered right around that number one spot in war for a lot of this season. So I went A minus. I actually gave them an A plus. I think mostly for the fact of the depth of this rotation earned them that plus. The fact that they can dig in and grab their ninth and 10th starters out of their farm system and not looking at innings restrictions have stepped right in and looked like big leaguers right away, 25 and under. That's incredible. How many other teams in baseball have that kind of depth in the in the pitching? I don't think any of them do. And I think that especially earns... Uh, this rotation and an a uh, an a plus for me kirby taking a step forward castillo being what you paid for gilbert taking a noticeable step forward and all of his off-speed stuff which we really harped on him for doing last season getting away from the fastball and, and introducing some more breaking stuff he's done that 
And I think all of them have exceeded expectations and have been the best part of this baseball team. Yeah, I'm with you. And and all five of these guys right now do have top of the rotation upside. Now, all five will probably not get there, but they all have that ceiling. And when you can dream on what these five guys can be, that's an exciting time, especially when they're all under club control for a long time. How about the bullpen final group? Bullpen, I gave a flat A. I actually thought they'd been a little bit better than the rotation, just when you look at the numbers. I mean, they're second in war right now. They're second in FIP. They're first in XFIP. This group's been great. To do what the Mariners' bullpen has done three years in a row, we've talked about it a million times, so I'm just going to say it for the million and first time. It's incredible. Bullpens don't do this. Paul Seawald's been great for three years in a row. Andres Munoz, now that he's healthy, awesome again. Really, the entire bullpen has just been nails. So how many more good things can you say about him? I gave him an A. I give them a B plus, a little bit down. I th- they would have gotten an A if Munoz has been had been healthy most of this time. Now, if you do that relative to expectation, maybe they could have earned an A, but I thought it was more along the lines of a B plus. I just don't know if I've felt as comfortable with them sans Munoz as with Munoz. Another reason for bringing that grade down. But it's really been great that the Mariners and their pitching development have managed to find guys like Justin Topa, like Trevor Gott, like Gabe Spire, like Taylor Saucedo, and even seeing Ty Adcock come in here and look good in a couple of outings too. It's really a testament to their scouting and to their development and the pitching staff and all these guys that they just bring up from the minors or, or scout on other rosters that they can just plug in and their stuff really plays. And I'm hoping that this grade goes to an A plus if we get a full second half of great Andres Munoz, which we've seen here so far. So that's why they earn a B plus for me. Overall, I would say an underwhelming report card. I think there are GPAs hovering probably right around three in this case, which is fine. You'll pass, but you're not you're not winning a valedictorian. You're not finishing top of your class, and you're definitely not getting into Harvard, Yale, etc. You're probably getting into Arizona State. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Three, yep. Hey, that, three, four, the proud three owner of a three point four GPA in high school. Oh, did you have a three point four? Did you get a higher one than me? No, I, I'm saying, did you have a 3.4? Because I was going to say 3.0. That's like the story of my life, both high school and college. I was right around a 3.0 or 3.1. I don't really remember. I think it was 3.4. Either my ASU GPA or my high school GPA is about 3.4. I think one of them was 3.6. I can't totally remember. I, was, I wasn't a terrible student. All right. Well, I did. I you... performed better than the Mariners. My report cards look better than the Mariners did this year. All right. Well, look, if you're going to look at this Mariners report card... I think it's self-explanatory because you see with the offensive group, there's a lot of C's, a lot of B's, there's no A's. So you wonder why is the offense struggling? Why is this team sitting around 500? There's not a good, there's not enough good grades in the offensive group. So there is much room for improvement in the second half. And hopefully we see some of it. We're going to have to see. There are some big series coming up here this week. It's going to be exciting week for you and I, we will, I will be taking the trip home. We'll be at the Tampa Bay series. I'll be there with Lyle on Saturday and Sunday. That's going to be really exciting. I think we'll get to talk about that a little bit more uh, next week. It'll be, it'll be nice to see them in person, but you know, these are games that the Mariners are going to have to start looking better in and improve their report card across, across the way. Pitching has done their job. Offense has not. And that'll be big as we go down the stretch here of this season. While I really enjoyed our conversation with Danny Vietti, I'm going to give credit to you for tracking him down and coming up with the idea to get him on. And it just so happened that he also attended the Oakland Athletics 
reverse boycott night. Fascinating stories to come out of that. So it's really good to have his insight on that and and talk about it with us. I thought it would be good to get some national perspective for where the Mariners are at at this point in the year. Danny certainly gave us that. And he's another media guy who has some great perspective. We enjoyed the conversation a bunch. And with the Oakland A's stuff, I thought it was really interesting and, and relatable, right? For people and fans of a city who lost their basketball team can relate to the city of Oakland who's lost multiple sports teams and now are likely going to lose their baseball team. And Danny talked about how a lot of their fans got to express their voices to him because he gave him a mic and a platform to do so. And a lot of it, a lot of it was really, really interesting. So that's more of a national storyline, but I think a really unique one. So be sure to check that out. And it relates to us. Mariners and East see each, play each other tens of times throughout the years. And it used to be 19. Mm-hmm. Now it's down to 13 or 14. But regardless, th- this directly relates to the Mariners. So it's, it's really fascinating. So let's not delay any longer. Let's get to our conversation with Danny Vietti. All right. We welcome on Danny Vietti, social media manager at CBS Sports. And he's also the host of the Wake and Rake podcast with Will Middlebrooks. Danny, we're excited to have you on. We appreciate the time. How many times on your podcast have you mentioned the obstruction play to Middlebrooks? <laughs> uh, it's funny you mentioned. So we actually had one episode. It was when times were slow. It was sometime like last summer. And, uh, we had an episode that was just his career and I had to make a thumbnail. It was, you know, best moments and uh, uh, happenings from the career of Will Middlebrooks. And of course I had to make the thumbnail for YouTube, the obstruction play, because that is the most iconic moment of his career. And it's okay to him. He doesn't mind too much because they ended up winning the world series. If they lost the World Series and like that's how people remembered him the most, I think he might take exception to it. It's kind of like what TJ was talking about just before you hopped on here. It was like, well, Colton Wong, who's a former Mariner now, I mean, he got picked off in that series. It might be a little different for him telling the tales of that series than Middlebrooks where, like you said, the Red Sox went on to win it. It was a play that wasn't really all his fault, right? He was kind of on the ground and they happened to get tripped up. It was just kind of one of those weird fluky things. Well, his story, too, is Jim Joyce was the umpire. And, and for people that don't know, Jim Joyce is the same guy that uh, made the the out call at first base, Armando Galarraga, the, the non-perfect, perfect game. Uh, he's talking with Jim Joyce as it's going on, and he asked Jim Joyce, what am I supposed to do? And umpire Jim Joyce, he said, you're just supposed to disappear. And so Middlebrooks just throws up his hands like, what the fuck is that supposed to mean? What do you mean disappear? This is the World Series. Uh, that was the best explanation that Will got from it, from Jim Joyce, was just disappear. That was the quote. Where did your connection with Will start? So he works as an analyst over here at CBS Sports HQ. It was as simple as we both work under the same umbrellas. I, I pitch in on the MLB department. Um, he obviously does as an analyst. I hit him up. It was during um, during COVID when no sports were going on whatsoever. I We had followed each other on Twitter for you know, some time. And uh, I sent him a DM and was like, dude, you know, it'd be great is if CBS sports did a baseball podcast. Uh, and he was like, I, I, I love the idea. That, that would be fantastic. And so uh, we started chipping into the fantasy baseball today podcast, part of the CBS sports podcast network. Uh, we tried to get our own show through that same network through CBS sports, only baseball, non-fantasy related, they didn't really want to invest in that type of thing because 
CBS Sports does not broadcast Major League Baseball, and we don't own the broadcast rights to a lot of things. So um, we decided to kind of go on our own venture and start the Wake and Rake podcast and have been doing, uh, excuse me, doing it now for, I think, two years, maybe two and a half years now. So, yeah, been going strong. It's been fun. Seems like uh, the way a lot of these things start, how it started with with Lau and I is like you just end up you have one conversation about baseball and you're like, huh, man, I think we get we could do a little we could do a little bit more with that. I don't know. It, it didn't sound like though you and Will had too much prior um I don't know, like prior rapport than to then you know just starting, which I guess can be good and can be bad. It, it depends how it mixes. None at all. Like we had never spoken before that one Twitter conversation. Like I said, like we followed each other, but we might've had an interaction or two, but I, I, I mean, to this day, I've known Willie now for uh, three, four years at this point, like via social media and stuff. I've only met him in person one time. I got to go to Fenway park last year uh, and, and spend some time with he and his wife, Jenny, as she was in town as well. Um, but that's like when young kids ask me about like my career and like advice for making it into the sports industry. The first thing I tell them is like, just reach out to people. Cause the worst thing that could happen is you get ghosted or like you, you, you get told no. So just like reach out to people, like uh, introduce yourself, like tell them what you're about, uh, tell them what you want to do. Like I, I got my start at max preps, which is owned by CBS sports. The only reason I got into the editorial department, I was really low on the totem pole as a, uh, it was like sports data inputter or something. It was terrible. It was a desk job, like terrible. Um, I wanted to be in the editorial and social media department. I walked over to the editorial uh, department, introduced myself to Steve Montoya, who was in charge of everything. I was over on the editorial department within a month. So like all it takes is just like either shaking a hand, sending a message via Twitter. And like great things can happen. And the worst thing that could happen is nothing at all. So that's that's some of the advice I normally tell younger guys trying to get into the business. So how long do you feel like it took you guys to develop your on-air chemistry? Because I guess with, with TJ and I, I mean, we've known each other forever now. And we've been friends for so long and know how we are both together and on air. So we had a little bit of experience before. Not to say that we didn't need to figure out our own podcast voices with this platform. But for you... With only meeting Will once in person, how how long do you feel like it took you guys to really kind of establish the relationship you guys wanted to have on your podcast? It's a great question. I'd say we're still establishing it. You know, uh, we're we're not a hundred percent sure like what we are, who we are, what we want to be. Because, I mean, you guys know this. There's thousands of baseball podcasts out there. So, like, why would anybody click on the Wake and Rake podcast? Like, what makes us special? What makes us unique? what Jimmy O'Brien and John boy are doing, like what he started with the breakdowns, the detailed breakdowns or what Rob Friedman pitching ninja does with his pitching breakdowns. That makes them unique. We've been trying to find our, our niche, our, our one uh, component that makes us different from everybody else. And I think we're still searching, you know, years later and maybe we never actually reach, um, you know, that level, I, I hope we do at some point, but, but I think what we bring to the table different than others is he brings kind of the player side of things. Obviously he's a world series champion. He's numbers of, he's got loads of stories, uh, players, coaches, playing stories, minor league baseball, etc. And he's got a good Rolodex of contacts too, that sometimes we'll have on the pod. What I think I bring to the table is like more statistical base, um, 
the nerdy side of baseball. And we kind of combine those things, and I think it makes a good a good mixture. So I would say it starts with respect. Like I respect everything that he did with his career and I respect his baseball knowledge. And most importantly, I respect him just as a guy. Like I see, you know, we FaceTime pretty regularly and I get to uh, interact with his family, his wife, his kids, and I get to know him more as a person. Um, it definitely helps to have a foundation like maybe you Lyle and, and TJ have that you have, um, you know, it's grown over the years. You have a friendship and a bond. Um, but I think there is something too to, I'm getting to know Will more and more over time which kind of make things, it makes things new every time we jump on a Zoom and record a podcast or, or FaceTime or, or whatever. We get to learn um, how each other are developing too because he's trying to make his mark in the media industry too. We both are. So we're kind of on a similar trajectory. He's got a little bit of a head start as he's doing pre and post game with the Red Sox on the broadcast team. But uh, it's fun because we get to see how our careers continue to evolve. How long have you nagged him to get you on there? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I when I went to Fenway last year, I got to meet. It was uh, He was in the booth with Tim Wakefield, uh, Tom Karen, who does basically all of their uh, hosting for pre and post. Uh, I've never once ever asked. It's, you know, it, that's that's it. I mean, he's worked his ass off to to be where he is. So uh, that's not really my place. If they wanted to ask me on, I would say yes in a heartbeat, and I'd probably, you know, um, give up, give up my marriage and house to be on there, uh, <laughs> hypothetically. Um, but no, th- that hasn't happened yet. I-, I think my age is still kind of fighting against me too, being so young. Uh, I think, I think that kind of uh, trips people up a little bit. Man, I think that mic flag looks mighty good, just right, right, right here. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. If we were going to transition a little bit to some Mariner stuff here, Danny, from a national perspective, we were hoping to get what your two cents are because we sit here and watch every game and we break a lot of stuff down. And obviously it's been a frustrating year for them up to this point. But from more of a national, maybe broader perspective, what have you seen from the Mariners here as we start to wind down the month of June? Well, I'll say this first. We were talking a little bit about it might have been before we jumped on um jumped on here before we went live or maybe it was it was during but you guys said that San Diego kind of holds a special plate in my, place in my heart which it does but Seattle does too I have a lot of family up in Washington uh Graham Washington my sister-in-law my niece my nephew is out in uh, Montes- Montesino Montesano something like that uh out near Olympia um and then my uh brother he was based in uh uh Fort Lewis so Seattle always holds a special place in my heart. I always find myself rooting for the Mariners as well, just, you know, West Coast bias. Um, When it comes to this season with Seattle, obviously losing Robbie Ray hurts. When you have a young rotation uh, like the Mariners do, Luis Castillo is more of a veteran guy. Marco Gonzalez is more of a veteran guy. But overall, you just have a young roster. When you have your most experienced arm, um, your ace – when you lose him for an entire season, that's tough to, to bounce back from. But I, I say that, but it's really been the offense that has been hurting Seattle more than anything, right? Like pitching wise, they've actually been fine with uh, Kirby and uh, like I mentioned, Castillo, but offensively designated hitter, second baseman. 
those are the two spots that jump out at me. When you look at slugging percentage among second basemen in Major League Baseball, Seattle Mariners are last in the American League. Uh, designated hitter-wise, A.J. Pollock has not worked out. When you look at the OPS among designated hitters, uh, the designated hitter position in Major League Baseball, yes, Seattle Mariners are last. And the designated hitter position for the Mariners also, they're batting like 165 uh, combined. Those are two massive holes in the lineup. And when you have guys like Julio Rodriguez not quite having the same year as he had uh, a year ago, it, it's you need you need the uh, you need your supporting cast uh, to be there, and, and so far it just really hasn't been there. Gino Suarez just isn't hitting the ball with as much bop this year as he did last. So overall, one through nine, just the lineup's just not producing enough, particularly that second base position and the designated hitter position. A lot of the discourse has been they really just didn't dump enough money into those positions. And we know you, um, if there's any team you watch closer than the others, would be the Padres, who did quite the opposite and dumped a ton of money into that. And I think it's very interesting that you could, I don't know, if you could, you know, bring some perspective for watching both of these teams and like, well, maybe, maybe that's not, you know, all it at, and I guess saying it that way. It's funny you mentioned money and like, is it resulting into success? So I just this morning, I took a look at the top seven payrolls in Major League Baseball. There's not a team right now of the top seven biggest payrolls this year. Let me pull it up, actually. There's not a team in baseball right now that is in first place with a top seven payroll. So number one, the Mets. They're in fourth place in National League East. They have the highest payroll in baseball. After that, Yankees, they're in third place in the division. Padres have the third highest payroll. They're in fourth place. Phillies, third place. Dodgers, third place. Angels, third place. Blue Jays, fourth place. Now, all those teams, they're either above 500 or flirting with 500, uh, as they should be when you spend that much money. Um, But with that said, you expect teams with high payrolls to be, at, at least one of them, to be in first place position Right now, that's not the case, and I get it's only June 22nd, and there's still time to kind of turn things around. Um, but I would say, you know, it's it's, it's teams like Tampa Bay. Uh, it's teams um, like the Giants, even, that maybe didn't completely fork over the paycheck, but they're doing it analytically, and they're finding guys to produce one through nine. Like, look what the Giants are doing this year. They lose out on Carlos Correa. They lose out on Aaron Judge. In years prior... They lost out on Bryce Harper, Garrett Cole. They've been in these conversations for these so-called big-time free agents, but they've been the bridesmaid every single time. They have not landed a big-time name, even though they've been in the conversations, yet they bring in guys like Luis Matos, who's been phenomenal ever since they promoted him. Uh, Jock Peterson on another one-year deal is producing at a high level. Conforto showing the long ball. Uh, Mitch Hanniger before he went back on the injured list. Those are really just underrated signings. Um, I think that's what Jerry Depoto in Seattle needs to do more of is finding player supporting role cast players that can produce above expectations. And I think that's what San Francisco does really well. That's what Tampa does. That's what Boston is doing really well with guys like Kike Hernandez and uh, Adam Duvall. That's what teams like Seattle uh, to get to that next level need to do a better job of. 
And those marginal signings the Mariners have had have not just flopped, but flopped in, in the most spectacular way possible with Pollock, with you know Colton Wong, who today, as we're recording here on, on a Thursday, the 22nd of June, finally hit his first home run of the season today. As a guy who's supposed to be your starting second baseman throughout the season has been relegated to the last guy on the bench. When when the guys you do sign to fill those holes don't play, it doesn't really matter how much you're paying them. You could have um, what you could have. You know, Trey Turner's. I think I saw his number today: twenty percent below league average shortstop production for three hundred million dollars. You could have Colton Wong's uh, paycheck of a little over ten million dollars this year while also being a crummy baseball player and well below league average offensively. Regardless, with both those both those players, it's both costing your team, no matter how much the paycheck is. The second base position has been an issue in Seattle for a long time, though, right? Like, yeah. like even go back to the Robinson Cano contract, which wasn't fantastic for either side. Um, and in the last three years, you, you try to bring on Adam Frazier, that w- that was mostly disappointing. You trade for Abraham Toro at the deadline because you oh. had a void at second base. Uh, mostly disappointing overall. And then now you bring in Colton Wong. So this is going on nearly a decade now where you – I understand that Robinson Cano was your answer at second base, but again, it, it just didn't work out perfectly. So you're going on 10 years now where the production at the second base position just hasn't been there, frankly. Yeah, it's funny because, and kind of tying this all in with the mid-level signings that you were mentioning, we've been doing this podcast six months, but that's been the talk for much longer than that. Not just the second base spot, but just spending money and finding production, all that stuff. And so many people in Seattle, especially on Twitter, will talk about the whole payroll thing and talk about the money thing. I think you've just got to find production. And when you look at second base, yeah, it just hasn't been there. And, And like... I don't think the Colton Wong trade was a terrible option. I think at the time it made a lot of sense, but it just hasn't worked out. So to your point, I think more of an argument can kind of stem from the idea that, yeah, they should have been looking at more mid-level guys. I think where you lose people like TJ and I is when people keep harping on the idea of they should have gotten somebody like Trey Turner or Bogarts. They were never really in those sweepstakes. But the mid-level guys, I I think that's the difference maker. I just think that's what puts people over the top because somebody's going to go down. Somebody's going to get injured. That's just how baseball and sports work. You got to have like, look what the, I know this is an extreme case because they have a high payroll too, but the Dodgers, like their entire starting rotation is on the shelf. Bueller's gone. Uh, Kershaw's healthy now, but Dustin may uh, gone. Um, Julio Arias was on the injured list for a month. I think Um, like nearly their entire rotation injured. Oh, Bring up Bobby Miller. Oh, um, we're gonna uh, we have we're gonna completely uh, rebolster our bullpen after losing Kimbrel and Trinan's been injured. Like that's what scouting does. That's what the Houston Astros do. Like Justin Verlander, see ya. That's okay. We still got. Uh, we're gonna bring in a new Cy Young candidate in uh, in Framber. Like it's just like a factory, and I think that's what's so important and is often overlooked in Major League Baseball is international scouting in the draft because not as much value goes into the MLB draft because there's so many rounds and it's long. It's so hit and miss, but that's where it starts really. And and so I understand the MLB draft as a whole is mostly boring to an ordinary fan, 
But from an organizational standpoint, it's one of the most, it's funny we're talking about this because the draft I think is in either a week, two weeks, three weeks, something like that. Um, It's one of the most important days for a major league baseball team to kind of set the tone and set the standard for the, for the years, you know, coming up. Let's transition now to a story that Lyle and I have talked about a little bit on this podcast, but you got to go see in person. It's just fascinating. It's something you don't get to see that often. You went to the reverse boycott on the day that the Nevada legislator announced that the, the funding was approved for the, the A's stadium, and there were a little under 28,000 fans at the Oakland Coliseum after they averaged under 9,000 fans up to that point in the season, and they're on this win streak, and, and the energy is unique because of the aspect of, well, they're going to leave, but not leaving yet. And it, it's just, it's so fascinating. What So let's just start off. What was your, your biggest takeaway when you arrived there at the ballpark and you see what's going on? Like, what, what are you, what are you taking away from this? It was really disappointing uh, that the news came out five hours before first pitch that the approval for the new ballpark, because this was all put on by the fans. 7,000 plus shirts were handed out completely funded, set up, planned everything just by Oakland fans. And this has been planned for weeks too. And so have the conversations with the legislature and the funding. And it just so happened that five hours before first pitch, the news came out that they're getting approved for a ballpark. That was pretty distasteful for me. Um, It just seemed way too coincidental for it not to be intentional. Um, it took the wind out of the sails of the fans too, because the writing's been on the wall for a while. Ace fans know that their team's likely going to move on, but there's still like a sliver of hope that they can still prove to people that they're still here. They're still going to make noise and it's not the fans fault. It's the owner's fault. And when that news dropped, like being there, being with the fans, it was like the mood completely changed, like snap of the fingers, flip of the switch. It went from sliver of hope of, of support for the team and uh, support for the city of Oakland to, oh, we're pissed. Oh, oh we're angry. Like, like that's that's not cool what just happened. I, we don't like that the news dropped on the day of our reverse boycott. You could have waited 24 hours to do this. You chose to do it on this Tuesday afternoon. Um, the mood changed from supportive to anger and just flat disappointment. So it was... It was an experience to be with the fans because you got to kind of see what it was like from their perspective and you got to kind of witness what they're truly fighting for, which is, in my opinion, it's not to keep the team. I don't believe that's what they're fighting for. I believe they are out there. They are at war with owner John Fisher and they are out to prove that it is not their fault that this team is relocating. It is John Fisher's fault that there are not more fans in the stands. If the team leaves, the team leaves. Like I said, the writing is mostly on the wall there. They're fighting to prove to people that it is not their fault. And in my opinion, you know, on at 5.25 p.m. on June 22nd, I think they're winning that war. Well, it's funny you put it like that because I think most people feel like it's all on Fisher and the ownership group, right? I mean, do you feel like there's people out there that think this is on the fans? Because my take on it is when a team's good, Fans are going to show up. If you look at the Reds last year, nobody's showing up at those games. You look at what they're doing now. These these games are packed. 
Where the A's, they have an awful stadium that has not been funded. You have a team that has not been funded. So what do you expect fans to do? Of course, they're not going to show up to games to watch an awful product. Like, people have to know it's on the ownership group and not the fans, right? You would think. uh, I'll say this. Baseball fans as a whole, for the most part, they understand what's going on in Oakland. But sports fans as a whole, I would say a little bit different. Like sports fans, if you're not watching baseball on a regular basis, sports fans are clicking on to baseball reference every once in a while to look at stats. And if you do that, if you're just looking at the numbers, you're seeing a team that has by far the lowest attendance in baseball for, I think, the fourth consecutive season now. Um, What they're not looking at is John Fisher bought the team after the 2004 season. The 2004 season, the Oakland A's had the 19th best attendance in baseball, which, by the way, not fantastic. You know, it's it's below average, 19th in baseball, but it's formidable. So he took a team that was averaging, uh, it was like 18,000 fans per game, 20,000, something near there, and now it's down to below 9,000. Um, that's years of taking advantage of fan bases, raising ticket prices, not signing players. The largest contract that John Fisher has ever handed out since he uh, took control of the team after the 2004 season, uh, Chris Davis, two years, $34 million, I think it was. Biggest contract he's ever handed out was two years. And so when I talk to like Mariner fans or uh, Cleveland fans, Tampa Bay fans, a lot of them complain because they feel they're also being mistreated. And I tell them the same thing. Just count your blessings because trust me, Oakland is having it far worse than any fan base in the country. I know it's not a competition, but Oakland's winning right now in regards to mistreatment. And I'm wondering where are these con these bigger contracts going to magically appear in Las Vegas? There's nothing that suggests that's that's going to happen. You're going to the 44th largest television market with a a non not really a baseball fan base probably a lot of transplant baseball fans there if there are any. And they said, yeah, we're going to average 27,000 fans a night. No, like, no, no, you're not. Maybe the, maybe the first two months of the season, you'll average 27,000 fans a game. But what happens after year three and the team's still not very good and you realize, oh, we're actually not making that much money. Uh, we're actually making more money in Oakland because... Well, we, we're also, we're not saddled with debt for paying for a stadium. Under the current ownership of John Fisher, uh, Dave Cavill, president, Las Vegas is a more viable option than the city of Oakland. And I say that because you get more foot traffic in Las Vegas. Now, if you bring in an owner who is actually going to invest in the team, I believe the city of Oakland is a more viable option than Las Vegas. I think Oakland absolutely has shown and proven that they will support a team when they invest into a roster. Uh, but again, John Fisher will not spend money. It doesn't matter what city he is in. It doesn't matter what country uh, he's in. He's not going to invest in the team. So as long as John Fisher is at the helm, he's not going to invest in a roster. And so for that reason... Uh, you get more tourists. Again, I said more foot traffic. A new ballpark is certainly going to help too. Vegas is a better option for John Fisher. If John Fisher decides he wants to flip the team, uh, you just hope that an owner that is next in line 
is wanting to invest in the team because that's the only way it's going to grow in Vegas. We've been through something like this too. We were pretty young when it happened, but when we lost the Sonics, I mean, we know how it feels. So you can only kind of feel for these Oakland fans. And I think we have a little bit more understanding for what it's like just because we've seen it happen in our own city and it was terrible. So we understand what they're going through. You tried to give some Oakland fans a voice when you were out at that reverse boycott and you went around doing fan interviews, asking them questions. You let them talk. You put it on social media. What was the most interesting answer you got, whether it was the most out there, whether it was the most insightful, what do you, what was the number one answer you took away from a fan? It's a great question. Uh, there was one video that really, like I I immediately, it immediately caught my attention as soon as he took the mic. Um, you have a lot of people come up to you and they want to talk. And that's what I was there for. I, I was essentially just a platform to voice their frustrations. Uh, I had one fan, uh, I want to say his Twitter handle is like sheep hat or something like, like he's been wearing, uh, his son put a sheep hat on him at some Oakland A's game at some point, And they went on a seven run rally and he's been wearing it ever since. Um, anyways, point being is that he was telling me, um, that his dad was a, a every other weekend dad. So divorce mom and dad and, uh, his dad didn't really know what to do with them when he was a kid. Um, just didn't know what to do with a child yet. Maybe he wasn't ready. I, I don't know. Uh, so what his dad does every weekend or every other weekend that he had him, he would take him to an A's game. And that became what, what brought them together and what they bonded over. Similarly, he and his brother, um, or excuse me, he and his future son, um, he didn't know what to do with him either. So he brought him, to Oakland A's games. And so he was explaining to me, like, this is generational. Like, this is what has brought families together. It's something that they can bond over. It's something, it's nostalgic for a lot of these fans. That's what it comes down to. They want something to take their kids to because they have great memories of going to that same ballpark. When you walk into Oakland Coliseum, as smelly as it is, as dirty as it is, as sewer filled as it is, it takes you back to previous times you know it's like walking into your elementary school so it's nostalgic for these for these fans and so when you take that away all of a sudden the reality of not being able to take your own kids to the same places that you went to when you were a kid starts to to settle in and so i think that's really hard uh for people to swallow and so again i forget his name i want to say it's she pat or something but he really brought to light the fact that fandom is generational and it has brought families together and it's it's so much bigger than just the game i saw you tweet this and i have to ask did you see any tourists who looked ultra confused of what was going on (laughs) that was my that was my first question too uh i didn't see any there was one person who responded to me on twitter and uh they did say it was their first baseball game ever um but they weren't like a foreign tour. I was more so looking for like foreign tourists visiting the Bay Area. Uh, never been to, don't even really know what baseball is all about. And uh, I did see it somewhere else on Twitter. Uh, there were, t- I want to say it was either a family or a couple uh, descending from either Japan or uh, somewhere in Asia. And sure enough, it was their first game ever. But the coolest thing about it was they were actually out at in the parking lot at the tailgate during the rally, and they were 
getting into it with the fan. They had no idea what it was all about. They had no context. They had no idea what they were even rooting for. But there's literally a photo of them in the tailgate, like arms up, um, saying sell the team. Uh, they were just enjoying themselves, but it was a pretty cool image. You could probably not go to another baseball game again and realize, well, that's probably as fun as it's going to be at a baseball game unless unless it's a playoff game. Yeah, set the standard way too high. Like the next baseball game that they go to, if they go to another one, like it's going to be so disappointing that there's not protests and people yelling at the owner and saying F John Fisher. The last question I have on this before we move on here is, wasn't it kind of crazy that the broadcast wasn't allowed to talk about what was going on? And I understand why, right? I mean, team owns the broadcast rights. There's certain things you can and can't say. But it just so happened that on a random Tuesday night, you've got your biggest attendance of the year. And they're kind of saying, well, it's a packed house in Oakland tonight. And a lot of fans decided to show out, but they, they couldn't say exactly why. I mean, I, I understand there's rules and stuff, but... I just thought, yeah, they can't they can't say the words, can they? They can't say reverse boycott. I'm plugging in my uh my charger here. Give me one second. Yeah. All right, now we're good. Um my big prediction for the night, and sure enough it became somewhat true, was Dallas Braden, the color commentator for the Oakland A's broadcast, he was gonna go down to the tailgate and he was gonna join in on the chance and he was going to be with the fans for the city of Oakland to try and keep the team in Oakland. And I predicted he was going to essentially risk his job uh, to be with the fans in the city of Oakland. Dallas Braden did go to the tailgate. He did take lots and lots of photos with fans and he was there in support of the movement. Fortunately for him, fortunately for baseball fans and, and baseball watchers, he was not fired, uh, but he did voice his, his support for everything. Just be to answer your question, just be careful where you get your news. And that's not just sports either. And I don't want to get too political here. That's not what I'm here for. But understand that there's always ulterior motives for every single company. Even myself being with CBS Sports, we have partnerships with certain conferences, leagues. Maybe we have certain freedoms with some leagues, but we don't with others. You know, I can leave it kind of vague like that. Similarly, Major League Baseball. If you looked at either of their pages, MLB.com or the official OaklandAthletics.com website, neither of them had a single headline that said Oakland was hosting a reverse boycott. This is a national story. CBS Sports had an article on it. ESPN had an article on it. Bleacher Report had an article. Like Every large sports media company had an article on the reverse boycott except for Major League Baseball. So... Hypothetically, if there's a fan out there getting only their news, like every morning they go on MLB.com for their news, they're not getting everything. There are stories that are not being told on that website. And to me, that gets really dicey and shady because Major League Baseball has MLB reporters for all 30 teams. If you're producing headlines, if you have beat reporters, if you have articles, if you're considered a news site, shouldn't you be held to the same standard that the rest of the news world is held to? Um, clearly, they are not. Clearly, they have ulterior motives. Clearly, they are keeping certain audiences blind to reality. And that, that was disappointing to see. Well, we certainly appreciate all the coverage you did when you were out there because it was super interesting. I don't think it would have told the full story if you hadn't given the fans all those voices and you hadn't talked about it. So we found it really interesting, which we really appreciated. 
Thank so to you. go off that and oh yeah, no problem. So to go off that and kind of talk about a little bit about your career in media. I know you're a former pitcher. You pitched in college and then you decided to get into the sports media world. Was there a point in time where you started to think to yourself, this is what I want to do? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I was, I mean, I'm a, I'm a youngest of four who all played sports, you know? So like sports is pretty much all I know. My wife's a nurse and we joke all the time that I've never really had a real job before. Like my first job was umpiring little league. Um, I did a, a, a really shitty pardon my French, uh, part-time <laughs> produce job when I was in college like 4 a.m. every day, just delivering produce in a delivery truck. That sucked. That was a real job. And so I I, I tell my wife that too. I said, don't you dare put that on me because I delivered produce. Um, but then in college, I, I started part-time at Max Preps. And then I've been with CBS Sports under that umbrella for six, seven years now. So it's kind of all I've known, really. Like I've never thought about doing anything else. There's a little bit of a part of me. My dad's a teacher. Um, when we start to have kids, my wife and I, there's a little bit of a part of me that wants to be more available when they're available. So, uh, I've thought about maybe going back and do, getting a teaching credential. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see a lot can happen between, uh, then and now, but I guess, I guess to answer your question, I've never, like, I've always wanted to be in sports. Like that's all I know. That's what my passions are. So I've never really thought much else. Sounds like the two of us. I mean, there's a, we both got sports, bro, sports broadcast degrees at ASU. And we nice. kind of said, I don't, I don't know what else we could really do. I mean, I kind of look at the other jobs that are out there in the world and I sit there to myself and say, yeah, I don't know if any of that other stuff kind of really interests me at all. I think it's kind of, it's, it's sports or nothing for me, which is why we're doing what we're doing. So we can certainly understand where you're coming from, from that regard. Like you said, you talk about not working a real job. It's fun, right? Like what we're doing is supposed to be fun. Well, it, Dude, like our worst day on the job, you guys know this, our worst day on the job is like our Wi-Fi goes down, you know, like, mm -hmm. oh my God, like I can't do my work because my Wi-Fi went down or like there's a protest at a baseball game, you know, like at the end of the world, like my wife, bless her heart, she is a uh, pediatric ICU nurse. She was dealing with families who have children in serious, serious care. Her worst day on the job, trust me, is a million times worse than my my worst day on the job or our, our worst day on the job. So yeah, it, it puts things into perspective. And I have people that ask me, should I go into the sports industry or should I go into the news industry? Just know if you go into the news industry, you're going to be dealing with some really serious stuff. And by the way, you're probably going to get paid similarly, depending on where you go. I always say about news the way I thought about it. It's like, well, news is usually the bad things that happen, which is why people are like, okay, that's when I'm going to flip on sports center and boom. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how we're get that's how we we cheer ourselves up. So why don't we just be on the cheery side for once? Yeah, just ignorance is bliss, man. Just stay away from reality and everything's good. If we had one final question for you, Danny, as we start to wrap this up, is there's one thing on your bucket list that you hope to do in sports media before your career wraps up long down the road? Ooh, that's a good one, Lyle. Um, uh, man. It used to be like interview certain players. But I've gotten the opportunity to do that with a lot of really cool guys recently, which is awesome. So I kind of got to cross that off. Um, not, nothing specifically, to be honest. I know that's kind of a boring, bland answer. But um, 
I used to want to do broadcasting, then I realized how slim pickings that industry can be. That would be great. If somebody asked me, okay, I'll answer your question like this. If somebody asked me to do color analysts or color analyzing for an MLB broadcast, that would probably be the dream. That would be great. Hey, maybe you can have a three-man booth with Middlebrooks and somebody else at some point. You just got to find a play-by-play person. They don't listen to me, man. I've been trying. <laughs> been vouching. They don't listen to me. No, I, <laughs> I keep my mouth shut. That's No, that's really cool. And you know what? You preach it long enough and you you never know what can happen. That's what we try to tell ourselves too. Hey, by the way, you guys need a basketball team up there. I've been preaching that for years. Get a team back to Seattle because I'm a Sacramento Kings fan too. And so I did not want my squad to leave. So I feel for you guys that your team left. And and talks got close too about 10 years ago with the Kings, didn't it? It sure did. And Seattle was not <laughs> Seattle uh, Seattle was on our shit list there for a while, but we're in good <laughs> graces now. Don't worry. We're good. We're rooting for you guys. Well, and you guys just broke a drought just like we did last year. The Kings just broke their playoff drought. So there we go. Who's like got the me. longest drought in sports now? Is it the Angels? Major League Baseball, it's the Tigers and Angels, 2013 or 14, one of the two. Uh, Don't forget the Jets. Let's not forget the Jets. Oh, there you go. You know what I saw (laughs) the other day, which completely floored me, is the Jets in their entire history. Like, that's a pretty long – that's a franchise with a pretty long history. They have two division titles ever in their – in the Super Bowl era. They have won two division titles in the New York Jets. That floored me. I'm like, that is – that's bad that's that's really bad so what broadway joe would be proud of (laughs) and if you talk to their fans you'd think they're the patriots (laughs) (laughs) danny this has been awesome we appreciate all the time you've given us we enjoyed talking to you a bunch and we certainly hope to do it again soon i enjoyed it guys uh you guys are doing so just keep it going man I, i appreciate you having me on Awesome conversation with Danny Vietti. We certainly hope you guys enjoyed the conversation because we can sit here and tell you that we certainly did. In the meantime, TJ, let's go on the farm here. Anybody you're looking at as among the group of minor leaguers over the last week? I had to do a double take of this name. He does share a name with a famous for some calls he has made and not made in his career umpire at the major league level. I believe retired now. But Jimmy Joyce, former 19th round pick out of Hofstra in 2021, has gotten off to a really good start in Everett this season. He was on the injured list for much of April and May. But in five games, he started all five, 17 and a third innings, been really eased back in. But he's got a 104 ERA and 20 strikeouts across three walks. A guy who struggled in Everett last season, a 5.75 ERA in about 112 innings in Everett last season. Again, just not very many innings so far this year, but the run prevention has been significantly better, and he strikes a lot of guys out. He struck a lot of guys out last year in Everett as well. So he's got the stuff coming out of Hofstra. Didn't even start until really his final season at Hofstra, but the Mariners saw that and have pushed him into the rotation. Every game he's pitched in, he started at the professional level, and he's seen some of the best success he's had in his professional career this year in Everett. I wonder if they'll start to move him quickly or not. Just because he's a little bit on the older side, he's off to a good start. We've seen some arms graduate from double A. Maybe, maybe they'll find a spot for Joyce here in the near future. He's a little, uh, he again, still is working back a little bit. So I would say maybe they're, they're going to stretch him out a little bit before, before they think about that. Well, I guess we'll see where he's at by the end of the year. That'll be a good assessment. 
Speaking of double A, I'm looking at a guy that kind of flies under the radar too, but you stare at his numbers and it's impossible not to recognize him. So Isaiah Gilliam, who's new to the system this year, by the way, he's quietly had an awesome year in Arkansas. So he's been with the Yankees organization during his career. He's been with the Reds organization during his career. He actually had a solid year last year in the Reds organization. But the Mariners signed him in late March. They put him in double A. And, oh, he's just sitting here toward the end of June with a 149 WRC plus in one of the hardest parks in the minor leagues to hit at, along with a 960 OPS and 13 bombs. He's been awesome. Now, he's a little on the older side. He's 26 years old. But he's not that old. You know, the average the average age for a call-up in the major leagues is right around 26 years old. So I'm not saying he's going to get called up or anything like that. But hypothetically, if he ever were, and it was around 27 to 28 years old, he's not that far behind. And I just can't help but notice the year he's having down there. Thanks for, for pointing him out. Honestly, He's a guy who I, you know, my eyes wouldn't catch on to until you pointed out how good of a season he was having. I was like, oh, whoa, that's pretty good. So great. That's great for him. Yeah, it's it's kind of like what Gary Hill said, right? When we were talking about Mike Ford is he said, you just never know when a guy might figure it out or somebody who pops out of nowhere. I'm going to keep my eyes on Gilliam because like I said, it's it's just impossible not to at this point after highlighting him. I think we got to give an honorable mention shout out to Jonathan Classe, who, as of I believe today, uh, it was announced that he's going to be participating in the MLB Futures game on Saturday. Saturday's a Futures game, and we'll be there to see him. Yeah, that totally we, threw us. That totally threw us off. We thought the Futures game was on Sunday, and then we looked. It's oh, it's it's Saturday. That and the celebrity softball game is Saturday. Then the draft is Sunday, right? And then the Home Run Derby Monday, All-Star Game Tuesday, if I have that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so we will be there to see Jonathan Classe. We would assume we will be there to see Harry Ford as well. I'd have to imagine he's going to get an invite. So hopefully there's a couple Mariners in there that we'll get to watch right there in person. And Classe, we've talked about him a bunch. Dude has been unbelievable, and I can't wait to see him in person. We'll get a speed assessment live from Lyle, as he says. He'll be on the. There's a good chance he'll be on the roster late in the season. So we're gonna we're gonna get to see Lyle. Lyle give us a self assessment on that when he sees Classe in person. I'm gonna say it again. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I am not booking it. I am not guaranteeing it. All I'm saying is, if the M's figure it out and turn it around, and they're in the race with two weeks ago, all I'm saying is, do not rule it out. I'm not. I'm not guaranteeing it. I'm just saying, don't rule it out. Okay. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> Okay. In the meantime, let's go over to our MLB wraparound here. So our first story, it has to be the Cincinnati Reds. They're the story in baseball right now. They just lost two of three to the Braves this weekend. That is not the story. They ripped off 12 wins in a row, sit at the top of the NL Central when nobody expected them to. They've been the most exciting team in baseball for a few, for a couple of weeks now. And they just, they're red hot. How about their core? All under 27 years old and all hitting extremely well. Ellie's a 177 OPS plus. TJ Friedel has actually been their, first of all, shout out all TJs out there been their most valuable player. He's at a 124 OPS plus Matt McClain, Jonathan India, Spencer Steer, Will Benson, all guys having above average offensive season. And 
they're that's not even naming who probably their best player has been this season. It's been Edwin Diaz's brother, Alexis Diaz, who's been the most valuable reliever in baseball. He's been worth two baseball reference wins above replacement. And we'll see him in Seattle for the All-Star game, almost certainly as the guy who's been the best closer in the National League. So while Eddie out this year, the Diaz name lives on. Reds are so fun. And we didn't even talk about guys like Jonathan India or Tyler Stevenson's had a little bit of a down year, but that is a really good core. And Stevenson, when he's at his best, is one of the better offensive catchers in the game. That core is for real. They're young. They're under team control. They're not going anywhere. Their pitching still has some work to do. But with the emergence of Hunter Green, despite right now being injured, and Nick Lodolo taking some steps too, that is a team with some real excitement and some real pieces. I think I'm going to come out on this pod and say this is no shocker to anybody, and I know I spent a season in the organization last year. I think the Reds are my second favorite team in baseball. How about Jake Fraley? So that's part of the reason, (laughs) right? Not only did I spend a year in the organization and get to know some of the guys, obviously, like I said, I got to talk to and get to know Ellie a little bit last year in Dayton, but this team is essentially another version of the Mariners because it's a bunch of former Mariners. Jake Fraley's on the team. I know Justin Dunn's battled a lot of injuries there, but there's guys in the minors coming up. Noel V. Marte just got moved up to AAA. Like, there's so many ties all of a sudden between the Mariners and Reds that it's just easy to root for a lot of these guys. And Fraley, to your point, he's doing a lot of what he did in 2021. He's walking a lot. He's hitting with some pop. He's been good for them. Jake Fraley would easily have the highest OPS on this year's Mariners team. He's sitting at an 853 right now. You can say, okay, their ballpark is a bandbox, probably the easiest park to hit in in baseball outside of Coors, but he is crushing it at the plate. This this is what the best case scenario people probably thought of Jake Fraley when they saw the potential, what he had in 2021, and what the Reds traded for, and they're being rewarded gratefully for it. Oh, by the way, the NL Central sucks. So like I said a couple weeks ago, the Reds could legitimately win this division. And I said that before they ripped off 12 in a row. They are right in the thick of that division, even back when they were a little below 500 a couple weeks prior. They can win that division. And when most people thought they were probably still a year away, they could be, they could make some noise here in the NL and get themselves into the postseason. We don't... I think you and I would agree. I don't know if their pitching staff would actually hold up in a playoff series, but mm. man, everyone would be tuning in to watch them because they make it so much more fun. Just look at Friday's game against the Braves. They fell, fell behind 5 nothing in the first inning, right? I, I th- it was the first inning. They were behind 5 nothing. a sellout crowd on a Friday night, and the, the energy never left the building. And the Reds stormed back and won their 12th in a row. Ended up putting, what, 12 runs up on the board. It was just just insanity. Ellie hit for the cycle. Uh, all the, all these insane things that have baseball fans around America just gluing in on the Reds. And Ellie's just so fun to watch. Everybody's seeing why. I mean, by the way, that was the first cycle a Reds players hit since 1989 when Eric Davis did it. And Ellie did it two weeks into the into his major league career, which is nuts. Let's move to our second MLB wraparound storyline. Let's go out to the Bronx. Aaron Judge gave a bit of an injury update for his toe. He has a torn ligament in his toe, and his timetable to return is uncertain. How about that? Yeah, they said a return isn't guaranteed. They think he should be back at some point this year, but they're not putting any expectations on anything right now. Now, 
it sounded like, especially when you look at the timelines for these type of injuries, that he should be back at some point in August. But again, it's far from a guarantee. And the Yankees all of a sudden are in trouble because we've harped on this. When Judge is not in their lineup, they are not the same team. They're not even close. And the numbers back that up offensively. And their division is by far the best in baseball. It is a juggernaut division. You think that team, Sands, Carlos Rodon, and Aaron Judge, they're two, two most recent highly prized acquisitions to the roster. Judge you know, went to free agency and came back, so I do count that. And they're going to get potentially zero of that for the rest of the season. I don't see a path forward into the playoffs for them. I don't see where that production is coming from. I just had to chuckle at this slightly related, but not totally related, where the Yankees are like, if they had Judge, obviously that's a roster spot and that's a bat in the lineup. But without Judge, they're having to play guys they don't want to. Like Josh Donaldson, who Aaron Boone this week came out and said, quote, he's going to play a lot for us. And I'm sure everyone in New York is thrilled to hear that. But that's just kind of the state the Yankees are in right now where they, they got to fill lineup spots. Josh Donaldson's become their new Joey Votto. You remember those Joey Votto stories that were just insane when he was on the team where he couldn't leave his apartment because Yankee fans were too threatening toward him or whatever it was. I mean, again, it was just these crazy stories. I don't know if it's gotten to that level with Donaldson, but he's their new target where – you know, everything he does that's bad is glorified or maybe glorified is the right, not the right word, but it is very, very much emphasized and blown up by Yankee fans whenever he's struggling. Now, they are supposed to get Rodon back here pretty soon. He's thrown a few rehab starts, so he's getting close. But that doesn't change the fact that he hasn't pitched all year and Judge, we'll see how long he's out. Yeah, I don't, the Yankees, a lot of injuries building up. What was the one thing that people were saying about the long-term health of athletes, baseball athletes, Aaron Judge's size, once they pass 30, that despite even if it's a freak injury and Aaron Judge running through a fence, just it's hard to stay healthy. It is, and we'll see how well the Yankees can tread water without him. I'll say it again. We said it when this injury occurred, and I'm going to reemphasize it. That third wild card spot in the American League is wide open. Like If the Mariners could just get out of their own way, there is no reason they can't get that third wild card spot if the bats could just wake up a little and start cruising because they felt like they're in neutral all year. But if they could just pick up some momentum along with this injury, the door is open for them. Uh, and just to clarify earlier, you meant Joey Gallo. Oh, what did I say? I think you said Joey Votto, who also relates to our first storyline. He came back and he hit two home runs on Friday, which still works because we didn't even mention Joey. So you're good. We're covering all of all of our bases. Oh, yeah. Maybe I said Joey Votto. Whoops. No, Joey Votto. Joey Votto better not be getting threats from people. I'll tell you what. That guy is for everything he's done in his career and is one of the greatest Reds to ever put on the jersey. I hope he's not getting threats. Yeah. Joey Gallo, when he was a Yankee, oh, it was brutal for that guy amongst Yankee fans. I mean, just how they're kind of blowing everything up with Donaldson now when he struggles. Gallo. It was terrible when he was there. And you know it affected him, too, because he heard all of it. Wait, you can't leave your apartment. Like, of course it's going to affect you. I'm just trying to picture that. Joey Gallo walking down the street and some, some dude in a Yankee camp comes up and says, Fuck you. 
just just out of nowhere. You're just walking down the street, but and you stand out because you're six foot five and you look like a baseball player. And you're just shopping for groceries and and just anybody out out of the out of the ordinary walks out of the crowd and it's not like, oh my god, you're Joey Gallo. They go, fuck you, dude. New York is just such a different place. Sometimes it feels like a completely different continent. And I know you and I are both big fans of New York City. We like being there. We have a bunch of family from New York. But, man, you would never see something like that happen in Seattle. Even if it was the worst player on the team, you would never, ever see somebody in Seattle go up to somebody in person if one of these athletes was walking along the street and give them the bird. But it sounds like that happened very often with Joey Gallo. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome to New York, I guess. Is it what you signed up for? No, because you got traded there. But yeah, I, I felt for the guy. Let's put it like that. Man. Okay, our last storyline here. Let's stay out on the East Coast and actually look toward the Southeast down in Miami. They've got a 20-year-old starter who the Mariners saw just a couple of weeks ago by the name of Yuri Perez. This guy is unbelievable. At 20 years old, he looks like baseball's next young, absolutely electric young ace. Do you know he is a f- more than a full year younger than the projected top three in this upcoming draft? Dylan Cruz, <laughs> Paul Skeens, Wyatt Lankford. He is more than a year younger than all three of them. Which is crazy. And the guy's ERA is now down to 134. That's That's in nine starts he's doing that. And he just threw six shutout innings the other night. He is so good. His fastball is awesome. He's got a couple of good secondaries. And again, he's 20 years old. He looks like he's been in the big leagues for five years. Listen to a couple of these notes. His last six starts, 33 innings, an 0-2-7 ERA, 38 strikeouts to nine walks, just 20 hits allowed in those 33 innings. He is the youngest pitcher since at least 1901 to record three consecutive outings of six innings and zero runs. He has allowed the fewest runs of any pitcher since 1901 in his first nine career starts. God, he's so good. That Marlins rotation, sky's the limit for him. I mean, if Sandy Alcantara could ever just figure it out here, or if he just figures it out next year and gets back to his all-star level, if not Cy Young level form, that Marlins rotation is so good between Sandy, between Yuri Perez, between Edward Cabrera, between... Rogers between and Max Meyer supposed to come back next year. Braxton Garrett has been pitching really well. There's so many. They're they're kind of like the Mariners in that way, right? Where they're so good at developing arms and they just struggle to develop bats. The Marlins pitching is ridiculous. And Yuri Perez, I mean, I think he's going to be one of the best pitchers in baseball going forward for a long time. Yeah, he's got all the tools. It's it's just so, so impressive to watch it. And he did it against the Mariners, too. So if you watch that game, you know how good he is. I was going to say, we'd read a ton about Yuri Perez coming up because he was such a highly regarded prospect. And obviously, we'd seen some highlights of him on Twitter, and we'd read about him. I hadn't gotten to sit down and watch a full game or start of Yuri Perez until he faced the Mariners. And I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. I yeah. get it because he looked the Mariners. He made the Mariners look ridiculous. And at 20 years old, he was just overpowering them. Okay. Uh, I think that's it for Yuri Perez. This is going to be a, an interesting Russell Wilson umpire of the week. Let's transition to that. Lyle, would you like to bring in our contestant? 
ties into the Mariners this week. So congratulations to Jacob Metz. He is our winner for the week. He was behind the plate on Saturday during the Mariners-Orioles game. Eugenio Suarez, I think people know where I'm going with this, is at the plate, 3-2 count, sixth inning. There's people on base, so there's a chance to really add on in this inning when the game's still tight. 3-2 pitch had to be multiple inches off the plate. Gino obviously watches it go by. Nope. Strike three, ring him up. Gino sits down. Pitch was not even close. And oh, you guessed it. The Mariners did not score that inning. They didn't score further, I should say. And not only that, not only was the pitch, I think it was about six inches outside. The, the pitch uh, was Bradish on the mound. Who was on the mound? No, Bradish was on. Bradish was Sunday. What was it? Dean Kramer, I think. Yeah. Or am I getting the uh, yeah, days so wrong? It was there was an Orioles pitcher on the mound, which we know that we know for certain, but not only did the pitch miss outside by six inches, the pitcher missed the target by two feet. Adley Rutschman was set on the inside corner of Eugenio Suarez and Adley has to move his glove two feet to his right to catch this pitch off the outside corner. And Jacob Metz still rings him up somehow. It was such a pivotal play in a game that it just cannot happen. And the Mariners tie the game in that inning with a Julio home run. They have Jared on second base in scoring position, ready to score the go-ahead run if Gino can reach. And he literally walked. But the umpire decides, uh uh-uh. Somehow, some way. So it was Dean Kramer, I just looked, which I thought was right. I just wanted to confirm because Kramer went seven innings on Saturday. It was so far off the plate like so we know that both of us are big fans of the robo umps here on this podcast i'm all open to the challenge system too in fact the more and more that i see the challenge system the more i like it why is it not already in the big leagues i understand they want to work out and test the kinks and make sure it's set to go for a big league season i don't care calls like that are ruining games people are not paying money to watch umpires dictate the outcome of games Players are not working their tails off to watch umpires dictate the outcome of games. If the challenge system's working in the minors, like get it up to the majors because calls like that are ruining baseball games. I think the challenge system is going to eventually be the system. I don't think we're mm-hmm. ever going to get fully automated because I think umpires still need jobs, but I think the challenge system works. And the challenge system is exactly for things like that. Everyone in the ballpark knows that call is wrong. All Everybody does. So why can't we just say, hey, I know that's wrong. You, you met, you fucked up. Let's change it. And you mm-hmm. can say, okay, fine. I got it wrong. And we can switch it to what should be correct. But unfortunately, we still live by rules that were invented uh, in the 1880s. Actually, no, I'm going to say 1900s because 1880s, you could actually uh, request, I think, what were there, eight balls or six balls? Wh- whatever. The rules were different. And yeah, I. I just don't have any words to this, man. Like, what? Like, why? Why is this still happening? I mean, there were nine games in a World Series series back then, too. Yeah, and they changed that. They've changed a lot of things since then, but they have not changed the fact that umpires are still dictating games to this level when they shouldn't be. Remember when I said this to you a couple of years ago? I actually, I was way out in front of this because the technology they're using—it's similar to when you watch tennis when they challenge a call. And you can see if the ball is in or out perfectly. You can see if it even touched 
grained a portion of the line in tennis. This is what it's doing with baseball. I think I told you about this a couple of years ago and you're like, all right, like we can see if it ever happens. And here we are. The technology is great, but we're still living in the stone age here in the major leagues. It's in, and the reasons are similar. You're because in tennis, you're asking people to stare at these lines and see a tiny, similarly sized ball hit hundreds of miles an hour at that line to see if it's in or not. So why, why is it 100% the responsibility of someone's own two eyes in one sport? And in the other sport, they're like, well, maybe it's a little too difficult to see a ball hurling at you at hundreds of miles an hour, breaking X amount of feet away from this certain area. Why can't we get an assistance? Why can't we? Yeah. And then there's no hard feelings. Gino gets the walk. He says, all right, mistakes happen. Didn't affect me. Call still ended up being right. You move on. But you don't move on right now in Major League Baseball. Clearly, we can't move on either because we're sitting here just going on about it. And it, it did. How did no one get ejected? How did no one get ejected? Oh, I figured Scott was going to come out of the dugout after that one because that was, I mean, that was impossibly bad, that call. So, yeah. And clearly, we're not over it because we're sitting here talking about it at length. So. Here we are. It flipped the game. It, it, it flipped the game. The Mariners ended up losing in extras anyway, but they might have not had to go to extras if that was the case. If they, if the call is correct, maybe they don't. Well, yeah. I, but we'll never know, obviously, because that call was made. Let's close out the show now and get to speak your mind. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. I have been looking forward to this Speak Your Mind since we recorded the last episode because we missed a lot over the last week. I don't even know where to start. Uh, I'm going to let you and start here and just ask you what's on your mind this week. I've got a good one. So if I were a professional athlete, especially one of in the 1% of the 1% of professional athletes and making that level of money... I've always daydreamed about what my life could be, right? Making millions and millions and millions of dollars, having more money than you know what to do with. You could be having dinners on yachts every night. And you figure, oh, when you look at some of these guys in their off seasons, like for example, in the NBA, that's probably what they're doing, right? They're enjoying their summer, dinners on yachts, living their dream life. Well, if you're Kevin Durant, the answer to that would be no. Because on a Friday night, on a sunny day in the summer, this man is sitting on Twitter, hops into a Twitter (laughs) spaces, just sitting at home by himself. He hops into a Twitter spaces that was titled, Kevin Durant is not top five. (laughs) So this, this means this man searched himself on Twitter, said, I want to see who's talking shit about me, finds a group. Hops in, requests to speak. They grant him the opportunity to speak in this Twitter spaces. And he starts going on about the way you guys consume basketball is a bunch of trash. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand the game. And it's not with a bunch of reporters. It's not with a bunch of people he interacts with on a daily basis. It's not with other players. No, it's with a bunch of Twitter (laughs) trolls that headline this spaces entitled it. Kevin Durant is not a top five player in the game of basketball. Now, if you're Kevin Durant and you have the level of confidence that he does, all that should matter is internally, you know that you are. Most players know that you are. But he takes time out of his Friday night to go argue and scream at a bunch of Twitter trolls. 
and I can't get over it. Does any athlete spend more time online than Kevin Durant? <laughs> no. <laughs> Nobody. In fact, so most athletes, I would guess, do have some type of burner account where they go and just search things so people can't tell that it's them or they can search their name and see what people are saying about them, but kind of stay behind the scenes. Now, that's what Kevin Durant used to do because he had a burner account. The issue is people figured out it was him, and then he just threw away the burner account and said, well, now I'm just going to start using my actual account and just ripping random fans apart, which is what he does now. So to answer your question, no, I do not think there's an athlete that spends more time on social media than Kevin Durant. Think of how silly this is. This is a tweet. Like, just to put this in perspective, why is Kevin Durant arguing with legend of winning and swipe a cam right now, dog? (laughs) Not why is Kevin Durant arguing with Skip Bayless? No, why is not? Why is Kevin Durant arguing with Stephen A. Smith? No. Why is Kevin Durant arguing with swipe a cam? I sent this in our group chat amongst some of our friends and I said my exact words were what on earth is this dude doing seeing that it's some Friday night in the middle of the summer and he's busy not hanging out with his friends not living his lavish life no he's arguing with Twitter trolls in a a Twitter spaces of all places it wasn't like he sent some reply and got back to his night no he actually sat in that group and spoke and trashed on all those fans with his own voice it is the WWE on hardwood. The night after the NBA draft, where all the focus is on all these great new players coming into the NBA and the future stars and Victor Wembanyama and San Antonio. And yeah, nah, nah, nope. Kevin Durant's like, I'm making headlines tonight. <laughs> oh, I love watching Kevin Durant just spend all this time on social media because he always gives people so much content to crave. It's insane. Here's another fascinating story from this week that I didn't realize you had no idea about. Did you know that Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg reportedly agreed to fight in a cage match? (laughs) (laughs) We're just, we're off the rails with these stories this week. There have been some ridiculous storylines this week. No, I did not realize this was a thing until you told me. I don't know why Elon would agree to this. I know his ego is, is astronomically high as as high as space rockets, as SpaceX rockets go when they don't explode, which is how this feud started in the first place, where Elon's rocket exploded and blew up a Facebook satellite. Just billionaire problems, you know. But Elon agreeing to fight in a cage match with Mark Zuckerberg while Zuckerberg won some medals in a jujitsu com- uh, uh, tournament earlier this year, which I think is fascinating. I hope Zuckerberg kicks his ass. Zuckerberg's also, you know, a slime bag, but I think Elon needs a, needs a bit of a reality check in terms of maybe a maybe a foot to the jaw or something. Yeah, I mean, hey, I'll root for Zuckerberg just because I'm tired of Twitter being ruined. I, I know, I know, Zuckerberg winning isn't going to change anything about Twitter, but that doesn't change the fact that I hate the new versions of Twitter that he's created. So, yeah. I'll- how many views do you think a pay- I think Dana White came on and said the UFC would put on this event. How many pay-per-views do you think they could sell at this? This would do more than any Mayweather fight, Conor McGregor fight. I I I'm struggling to put a number on this. Yeah, because you're not you're now not just appealing to sports fans. There are going to be general just people out there 
that because these guys are so famous, not just in the sports world, but in the world in general, that you are going to just pique people's interests enough that they are actually going to tune into this fight. There's going to be normal people that aren't sports fans that just kind of live their everyday lives that wouldn't usually watch something like this that may actually pay the money to tune in to watch Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk fight. I know I would. This is going to be fascinating. Yeah, same. <laughs> I mean, Appo- appointment like- viewing. I, I don't know how Elon Musk fights, though. Have you, you've seen that photo of him on the boat without a shirt uh-huh. on. I just don't I just don't see how that fights anybody. I, I mean, he's probably not going to win, especially if Mark Zuckerberg's done jujitsu. No, he's not. I think uh, sports books have Mark Zuckerberg at about an 83% to win that one. <laughs> that sounds about right. Oh, I, man. I wanted, I wanted to talk about this one briefly last okay. week, but we didn't get to because I don't think the story had concluded. Mm-hmm. How about this submarine story? Yeah. Just, just, it just kind of like you, you see some of these things and some of these quotes coming out. It's like, how would anyone ever agree to, to get on? That submarine, the Titan, that went down to go view the Titanic, and it imploded on its way down, and now it lays at the bottom of the ocean right next to the Titanic, ironically. But just a just a crazy story. Yeah, you feel awful for the people that were in that submarine, but I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you what. As somebody who doesn't even like to go in the ocean, I'm not getting in a submarine to go below the water for two miles. Yeah, I'm not getting in that either. I don't. I wouldn't get on a military submarine either. I mean, even those are fitted to to withstand whatever pressures they're going to. It, it was really kind of interesting. I would say to learn a little bit more about deep sea diving for for all of this and 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 submersibles and stuff. That there's a reason they don't have five person trips down to the Titanic usually because crafting one of those things in something in that in that shape with the the metals they usually use to build those deep sea divers doesn't normally doesn't work as well i guess cuz they built this completely differently i i don't know if i should feel bad for these people or not that they were on that like it sucks that people do lose their life to be honest i don't know if this is a hot take or not but they had to did you see they had to sign a waiver before they got on right noting specifically that this submarine has not passed any sort of uh any sort of uh, non-ocean gate safety checks, none, none at all. And that they had to sign that saying, I acknowledge that this vessel is purely experimental and has not passed any of the, any of these checks in which I would say, man, $250,000 to go down that deep on a vessel that is not ruled safe by any board and a company that had faced lawsuits over safety concerns for getting on that vessel. I think it's just uh, it's just a fascinating scenario of some people feel like they're invincible to be honest. Yeah. In that in that case that's what I feel like, right? Mm-hmm. You don't think anything wrong is going to happen to you on a experimental vehicle until it does. That is interesting if if I didn't understand I didn't realize the part that they signed I, I guess I didn't read that far into the story that I didn't realize they signed a waiver saying that basically the submarine was not safe and very much go at your own risk. Obviously, I still just feel for them that they lost their lives, but yeah, like that's kind of an irresponsible decision and kind of is probably putting it lightly. That is a very irresponsible decision. It is. And all to go see a boat sunk at the bottom of the ocean mm-hmm. for, for X amount of time. Um, and yeah, it, it was crazy. Last thing for me, um, 
It's fireworks season. I fucking hate fireworks. If you buy fireworks, like piss off. Yeah, like, I don't know. I don't know what there is to enjoy about them. They're loud. They disturb. They disturb everything. Um, they catch things on fire. People, you know, hurt themselves with fireworks. And yeah, probably probably one of the stupidest things about America's birthday is that everyone and their mother feel like they need needs to buy fireworks. So for people like me who despise fireworks in in every sense of the way, um, yeah, well, I'm, I hope you have fun. But no, it sucks. I forgot you don't like fireworks. I didn't realize that you didn't like fireworks until about two years ago. We went to a Rainier's game and we went up because it was the game Jared Kelnick was playing in before he got called up for the first time to the big leagues. Logan Gilbert was starting and Mackenzie Gore was starting for El Paso on the other side back when Mackenzie Gore was a top 10 prospect. So it was a good game to go to. We went and then we didn't leave early enough to the point where we could just get in the car and go back before fireworks started because it was a fireworks night at the ballpark that night. So we had to stand there and wait for the fireworks to end. And I remember looking over at you and you've got both hands over your ears nearly the entire show. And I'm like, oh, you you must really hate fireworks. Like, I'm not saying they're not loud. I'm indifferent about them. But yeah, you're not a fan, are you? No, no. I I don't see the benefit to society. I don't. They're just loud. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that is one way to look at it. Well, I guess people like them because of the scenery, I guess. Great. Great scenery. You can go to an art gallery and see scenery, too. It's quiet. That's true. Well, TJ will not be lighting off fireworks on the 4th of July. Breaking news here on, on the pod. Nope. Yeah. All right. I think that just about wraps up this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast. You guys know the drill. If you want to... Listen to the full podcast. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. Full video forms on YouTube. Please go check us out on YouTube. Hit subscribe. You'll get notifications when we put out a show. Help us beat the algorithm there. And then if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube shorts. Our ads for those are all at Marine Layer Pod. For TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.